Howdy, folks. I'm Chris Connor, the host of CC Life Science and Life Science Marketing Radio. I've got a good one for you today as we discuss a different model for startup valuations. I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will too. Before we get started, I know planning season is coming and the fourth quarter is approaching. Both of those are good triggers to think about creating some new unique content for your business. Regardless whether you are a startup or a mature brand, someone should be telling your story on all the relevant channels. My business is helping them tell that story through video, audio, and text. If you want to know more, there's a link in the description. Now, let's jump into our conversation. Adrian Rubstein is the co-founder of AX3Bio, an investment advisory for life science companies and portfolio assessment. He also produces the Bio Business newsletter on LinkedIn. I'll put links to Adrian and the newsletter in the show notes. Adrian, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you very much, Chris, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be. Yeah, I'm glad to have you, and thanks to Mark Gannett for introducing us. So our topic today is, you know, assessing a market and putting a value on a company. But let's start with your background. How did you get into this? Okay, it's a long story. I hope that nobody's flagging out after that. Uh, but, you know, I, my background is in molecular biology. I got a master's degree in molecular biology, been working on, a, you know, for like, four years, something like that, in basic research in cancer. Uh, and after that, you know, I wanted to learn more about uh, what is outside the molecular biology uh, and then went to get a degree in pharmacy. And after that, I, I wanted to learn more about the clinical setting. You know, when you study basic science, you don't get access to most of the translational kind of a deal. So I went over there working on a, on a hospital, one of a, a big hospital, working on a clinical research. Uh, helping them with all the epidemiology kind of a deal, working on uh, how to do the protocols, statistics, and all these kind of things. Uh, and after that, I said, you know what? Maybe there's the time to go to the pharma and understand what is going on in the private sector. So I went over there and worked like 10 years in uh, Novartis and also in Merck, but in the U.S. it's called EMD Serono. Uh, I don't know if it's a trademark kind of a deal. <laughs> But uh, I work uh, over there in uh, medical affairs, with a little bit of uh, investment, uh, investment scouting and all those kind of things. And on the side, uh, helping a couple of funds and companies, in, uh, most, mostly in, in Boston, understanding how to, you know, how to show the value proposition, understanding the strategy and all those kind of things, right? Uh, and after a couple of years, uh, I said, well, maybe there's a sweet spot uh, to join together two departments that usually don't work together, that is science and economy. And so maybe there's a, a way in which we can get more science into finance, some finance into science, and help investors, you know, uh, understanding the full potential uh, on a life science company. Um, that's where we are right now. Uh, nice. All right. So tell us a little bit more about AX3Bio, and then we'll jump into actually the actual work and science that you're putting into the... It, Finance. Yeah, that's great. As I mentioned, uh, like uh, two minutes ago, it's like AX3.bio. It's a company that merged uh, science and business and economics to to understand what is going on in the company and understand the potential for a company. Like uh, you know, life science is a long game, and uh, 
it's good to understand the science, but it's also good to understand where is the market fit, uh, what is the market that you're targeting, and how the, the economic framework might look like in this company. So that's that's the main idea behind the company. Right. So let's talk about figuring out what the market is. And you make your assessment based on the science, if I'm understanding mm -hmm. it correctly, rather than some sales projections, which are based on something else. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean so talk about the difference <laughs> and the advantage. Yeah. I mean, most of the companies, uh, when they, they want to show how they, they will be the, 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 the evolution for the company, try to show you what are the, the business projections, how much they're going to sell. If it's vials, if it's uh, medical devices or whatever, right? So we said, yeah, that's great. Tell me what are the assumptions on the strategy because behind the numbers you're showing me. You know, one of the main things that per revenue companies, which are probably 90% of life science companies, uh, I'm leaving aside the tool and those kind of things that may have a, a revenue early on, but biotech and all these kind of things, they may take a couple of years, right? To get a, any sales, if they ever got any sales, right? Maybe they, they got acquired early. But uh, let's say that you're showing me projections. Okay, what are the assumptions behind it? Do you, do you have any contracts with any company? Do you have any LOI? Do you have anything to back up what you tell them? So for us, that makes sense to look at the company at how much vials they're going to sell. For us, it's much more important to understand what is the probability for them to get the market that they try to get. You know, the Tamsom Sam kind of a deal. Okay, what is the accumulated probability for them to get that market? It doesn't matter if it's 2%, 5%, 10%, whatever, right? Investors would like to see, like, they ca you can target, like, 10% of your sum uh, because that's huge. But the main, the main idea behind it, okay, what are the assumptions to get the community probability for getting that? Just let's get an example, right? An oncology uh, therapy has an 8% probability to hit the market. So, so that's quite low. But right now we're getting biomarkers. We're getting a lot of things that are increasing the probability for getting to the market. But for us, the more important thing is that when you're trying to understand which are the nodes and or at the milestones that a company needs to achieve, each node has a probability of success. And the most important thing is, okay, which is the probability of success in each node for us to understand, okay, you're going to target that market, okay, that's the assumption that we get. Of course, we, we have the, our macro microeconomies to understand all the balance sheet and all these kind of things, right? But from the macro level perspective, the main idea is to understand what is the probability for you to get the, that market and not if you're going to sell 10,000 vials or two machines. And then when we got all this information into our model, we go what it's called backward induction. And we say, okay, we got this market, we got this probability for you to get it. Okay, that's your value right now. Um, and it's funny because when I, if, I, if I tell you which is the framework that we use, that is the real option, uh, it's, it's been used on bonds for, I don't know, maybe 30 years, something like that. But we find tuning using a different framework. I mean, we use a tailor-made approach for a real option just to be used as a binary outcome. You know, life science companies tend to be binary outcomes. They sell or they don't sell. I mean, it's not like a SaaS company in which you can sell maybe a couple of subscriptions. Most of the companies, they work, they don't work. 
I mean, the science works or the science doesn't work. Right. So you need to have like a binary approach uh, for that kind of things. But it's a fine tuning that we need by ourselves because we cannot use the black and show equation or any of the things, mainly because they use different assumptions. So it's all or nothing in bio. So there's, let's help me validate my understanding. There's a total addressable market. Mm-hmm. Then a company says, we can, we project that we can sell X into that market, or we're, we're going to make this much money. Mm-hmm. And then you ask about the assumptions. And for each of those milestones, you have some benchmark probability just based on success of oncology drugs broadly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For example, and then other whatever other milestones you have, and you apply mm-hmm. that across the whole thing, and you yeah. get a number. Yeah, the thing mm-hmm. is that most of the time, the market assumptions are not exactly what they should be. Uh, a lot of uh, companies, they want to show that their market is probably 5x what the actual market is. And why is that? Is because they're, they're not measuring sometimes in the correct way. And that's why, that's where the science comes in, right? They say that we're working on therapeutics or diagnostic, it doesn't matter, right? But for therapeutics, maybe it's easier to see. What is the total addressable market, the patients that uh, you're looking for, right? Let's say we're working on an antihypertensive kind of a drug, right? Uh, the total addressable market is all the people that have this issue. But then when you try to, you know, stretching down, you need to understand which are the population. It's not going to be all the population that is going to be targeted by you. Okay, what if the incidence, what is the prevalence, the mortality rate, all these kind of things add up to understand which is the actual market. And then you need to have a little bit of a game theory to understand how you're going to compete with your saturated market, right? You say, well, we're going to get a 5% of the market. How? How you're going to feel? Let's say that... Uh, uh, this landscape has like uh, five companies. They are pretty much established and uh, you need to steal. I mean, you, you cannot uh, get the pie bigger. You need to steal part of the pie. How are you going to steal this pie? I mean, you're going to be a first in class. You're going to be, a, it's pretty hard to say a best in class before a phase two, right? Or phase three. But let's say you're, you're, you're new, new in class. Okay, how is this going to work out and your strategy to show that you can steal these kind of things. Uh, and that comes all the assumption for the model. I mean, if you're on medical devices, do you have any reimbursement strategy? How, I mean, we know pretty much the acceptance rate from FDA is like 30% from medical devices. So that's pretty low. Uh, so that's a huge hit on the way you try to understand the probability for you to get an approval and then you can fill. There's a lot of medical devices that are type one and they just need to have a notification. That's another kind of a journey for the company. Each company and each industry have a different journey. And we need to understand this journey to understand how the probability for the company to get what they're saying they want to get, right? And right now, that's all modeling. And as my economist friend said, models, they don't work it out, but I give you a compass on what, what may happen that's why we do a sensitivity analysis. And we say those are the different scenarios, right? The first one is that, okay, you get approval from the FDA. 
And then what is the probability for you to get acquired, the probability for you to hit a milestone, the probability that, okay, right now the, the KOLs like your product, what is the probability for you to get an exponential sale or not? They're totally different scenarios, and each scenario has a probability for it to, to happen. So that's a huge decision tree analysis, and we're just talking about one asset. Let's think about a platform in which have several assets or an asset with several indications. That's get a little bit tricky and it's not a, a tree is like a forest, something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I was thinking about something there. I mean, obviously lots of different things, reimbursement strategy, or let's go back to stealing part of it, you know? <laughs> I mean, what kind, what kinds of things raise that number? <laughs> I think most, a lot of people will be interested. What do I do? Yeah, I mean, what, if you're in a, if you're in an early stage, there's pretty much uh, nothing that you can show. But that, when you start, you need to start to talk with pharma, or to work with medical device companies, or have partnerships. You know that the, you have a partnership with the Mayo Clinic, and you're a medical device. There's the heat you know, the huge probability that, you know, when I was working at Pharma, every major company tends to work with the KOLs and then the KOLs get the message down for, like a waterfall, right? So if you already have a contact with those guys, the probability for the guys below that is going to use what the big guys are using, it's, it's increased, let's say that. So that kind of partnerships are great. You need to start early on for, you know, for physicians to understand what your product is. I always tell a couple of companies that I'm working uh, with right now that if you have a great product, you need to start working with the physicians that are going to be the key opinion leaders or advocates for you. And if you can get a paper talking about what is going on with your product, it's like an expansion way. Everybody has a top of mind. And once you get in the top of mind of people, I want to see if easy, but it's easier, and it's going to increase those probabilities. If you're in the therapeutic area, uh, you need to start talking with the pharma early on, just for them to know what is going on, so you don't lose the strength. And it's not like, okay, I'm going to do after I have a CMC or a pre-IND approval or whatever. No, you need to start, you know, it's like... A, Ants work. You need to start baby steps and then for people to know what is going on and then to update them. You know, I, I always tell a company that they need to have a newsletter for not just for investors, but potential investors. Like, you know, those are the milestones that we achieve. It doesn't matter if they're not going to invest in you right now, but they might invest next year. And they need to know since there's a lot of companies, right? And investors, when they review a pitch deck, some might take like 30 seconds, others might take like five minutes, right? Uh, so they need to, you know, follow, follow up you. And uh, also to understand what your, your next milestone. Some investors, they're going to write checks for five million or more. So if you're raising two million, doesn't make sense. But it's good for them to know that you're in and you're here, right? Um, there's other strategies that you can work with, right? But uh, I think that those ones are, I mean, that's what the big pharma does, right? The big pharma partners with the KOLs, 
the big pharma partners with some other companies. You know, when you see a, a small investment from the big pharma in a startup, is that they think that it probably makes sense. If you accomplish what you're saying that you accomplish, there's the high probability for you to get acquired, right? They're just tasting the menu, seeing what is going on. And if you really hit what is going on, and you already, let's say that you're working on gene therapy. Uh, everybody wants to get in gene therapy, cell therapy, whatever, right? Um, so you have a really nice aesthetic technology that it's not entirely validated. Pharma is going to say, you know, I have a spot for you in my pipeline. I'm going to have a small blue chip on you to see what is going on. And if you get what you say that you're going to get, you know, we're going to start conversations. But if you're working on therapeutics, it's great to understand what a potential so, exit might look like and which will be the potential exit. And for that, you need to look at the pipelines, look at the strategy, look at the financial reports that they release each year. I know it's for some huge report, but if you start reading at the report, you're going to see the strategy. What are the goals in the next year? Uh, you don't know what's going to happen in two years, right? But uh, maybe the next year, they're, they're just saying, you know, we're, we want to target those technologies. So it's, you know, if you're working at those technologies, you need to start working with them. At the beginning, they're going to say you're too early, we need more data, whatever. But you already know that you're here. And that's a huge yeah. step. So this has come up a couple of times um, on my Life Science and Marketing Radio podcast about starting to tell your story early. You can't wait till you make the milestone and then wave your hands and say, hey, look at me, right? You got to, yeah. You have to open people's minds to even start thinking about these things and repetitively and start a and, newsletter one and then a podcast number two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, I, I, when, I, when the, you know, with the COVID, that everybody wants, you know, they learn how to cook or to play the piano or whatever. Or whatever. I got myself my own podcast. You know, uh, but it's a great way to understand how to tell the story. I, I mean, I, I don't like the PowerPoint kind of thing. I like to tell story, but I know that not everybody are cut by those sixers and not everybody likes to talk on that. Mainly if you're a scientist, most scientists, they don't are like a high charismatic kind of people, but that's a skill, soft skill that you can work in. Uh, and if not, you know, there's other people that can do that for you. Right? You can train them. Uh, but investors are looking also for the vision, also to understand that you, it's not, I mean, the science is very important, but the team is also very important, is that you have the team that needs to be the one that executes this part of the, of the journey, right? When the company gets to a Series B, probably the CEO is not going to be the thing. They will need a more experienced guy as with gray hairs, probably, uh, that's been, you know, a big position in Parma or whatever. But uh, at the beginning, you're the one that knows your product best, and you're the one that needs to tell that story. That's why when we work with, the, with investors, we always ask to have one or two meetings with the founders. I mean, we ask for access to the VDR because we, I mean, we're in private markets, so there's a lot of information as industry. And we need to get access to it. I mean, if we don't get access to the VDR, there's a couple of things that we will find elsewhere. 
with access to the video. And we use it just as the, you know, as a compass to understand what the company is thinking, right? But we want to have a meeting, one or two meetings with the founder, just we can talk with them and understand if they, if they can sell the value proposition or the vision to execute what is going on for us. If a founder or CEO cannot tell me the value proposition in one sentence, they don't actually understand which is the value proposition that they're selling, right? If you need to be able, I mean, it's, a, it's an old thing, you know, the pitch elevator, they need to be able to chat in a couple of seconds or in one minute to show you what the company is about. And if they cannot do that, that's a huge red flag for us. All right, let's go back to reimbursement strategy. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about this, but give me some education for people who aren't thinking about it or need to think about it or know they need to think about it and haven't no. yet. I mean, reimbursement strategy, it might seem easy to say, but it's not that easy to accomplish. I mean, you have Medicare, you have Medicaid or any other private kind of a payer, right? So you need to show them what, what is the upside for them to pay for your product? And for that, there's a great, I mean, you need to be able to model the health economic for your product. I mean, if, they, if you're selling, a, let's say, a medical device for heart failure, what is the upside for them? Are you decreasing the time in the ICU? Are you increasing the expectancy of life for this guy? Or what, what, what are you bringing to the table? So if the payers understand that, that you can really show them, you get a reimbursement and you have the, all the codes that people really like to look for. And I, I, I work with a company that they use EEG analysis for depression and I couldn't find any CPT code for that. So I'm not an expert in CPT code kind of looking at, we, we have a guide for that, right? But uh, please hire someone that is an expert. It's a huge mess to understand what is actually your code for that. But having this strategy beforehand, it's great. So the FDA will understand that you know that the payers are going to pay you for that. I mean, if you cannot convince the payers to pay for your service, nobody's going to buy it unless you're going like out of pocket. But uh, if you're talking of, you know, a device that costs 2K, 3K, 5K, I don't know how many people can get it out of pocket. Mm. So that, that's a huge deal. And medical devices, I mean, you need to think about early on what is the strategy that you're going to follow. Uh, for therapeutics, it's pretty easy. I mean, unless the market is so saturated that you have like 20 different compounds. Uh, if you have 20 different compounds, you need to have like a health economic analysis. Uh, because the payer is going to say, you know, I have 20 other different uh, molecules. Why do I need to approve yours? Well, because we can decrease whatever variable that is important and we're better than the, the best in class right now or whatever. You need to convince them. If the market is like one or two uh, compounds, probably you, you don't need to do that. That's why you need to have the pre-approval or the pre-meetings with the FDA, right? To say, you know, what do you need from my side? Uh, if it's an orphan drug designation, they're going to pay for that because there's nothing on the market. Uh, and then you have, you know, the, what is called the golden ticket. I don't know if you've heard that the, uh, a company got a golden ticket from Duchenne 
and just sold it for uh, 150 million dollars. Uh, so it, you know what? If you and you got a golden ticket from the orphan drug designation, you want an early assessment for an approval, and you can sell this ticket. Mm. But uh, that that's a different story, right? That's that's <laughs> one other thing. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's really important. And and when when we assess the company uh, early on, probably they they don't need to have all the strategy in place, but they need to have something working out. I mean, if you're a medical device, you surely need to have some payer on your advisory board. And someone that has been working for payers, on been working on hospital or whatever, because you need to have the, this experience. And, I mean, probably the, if you have a CEO that already has some experience, that's great. But if not, you need to have someone on the, on the advisory board. That's why the, the advisory board is so important, because they fill the gaps for the entire team. Uh, but you need to have them engaged. You, you don't need to have an advisor that they work like one a year. Right. There's so many people or you need people on your team who can think of all these things early on yeah. and have a plan. Just like marketing any product, you need to know what the market is and how you're going to get it out there and all the obstacles you're going to need to overcome. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and also, and also it's, it's great to have economists on a, on a team. It's because they think differently than scientists. They look at the macro kind of supply chain. I mean, uh, we, we happened to, to assess a couple of companies that are economists and understood that there was a vertical integration between uh, one of the companies from the portfolio of this venture capital and the company they were assessing, right? And when you have synergy on a portfolio, it makes a lot of sense. But that was economists saying that, you know what? This company can be vertically integrated with this one. And those concepts from horizontal integration, vertical integration, are pretty much economical terms and not science. So you need to have a, you know, a multi-experience team. Um, I mean, I, I always like to work on that way. Uh, the great thing is that we also have a financial right now two financial engineers and financial engineers are great and working for valuation and they understand which is the you know if you're working uh, understanding that you know companies change their risk profile once they advance on the journey the risk profile in the beginning is not the same at the end so the what is the call the whack or the or the risk assessment change in every step of the way I need to be able to understand how this risk change for different scenarios. So they're great at understanding this kind of thing. And the good thing is that most of the thoughts are pretty well known in software or in other industries that are much more mature. Life science is not mature enough right now. So there's a lot of uh, things to work on, a lot of uh, you know, new assessment uh, and new technologies that can bring from the other industry to try to accomplish that. And that's the great thing about uh, economies, that they've been working on different. So that makes a lot of sense. Right, because scientists, you know, very focused, thinking if we make this thing and it works, we're done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and not thinking about a bigger picture of how it fits with other things and all the obstacles. So you're talking, when you're talking about risk assessment there, you're not talking about 
you know, patient risk or product risk, you're talking about going to market risk, all the different things that could impede you. And not just that, it's the risk for a company to fail. You know, yeah. 99% of the company are going to fail. It's, not, it's no secret. But the thing is that when you, you advance on your journey and you validate and you the risk you're after, this risk is decreasing over time. And uh, you have investors that have more appetite for risk. Those are the early stage investors and other investors that they don't want to deal with risk. They want to work with companies that are really the risk part of the asset. And that, I mean, and they want to be a company that already the risk the asset is because they're running bigger checks. It's not the same investing one million than investing a hundred. So that's a different appetite. But, uh, and also, companies may not have the same risk baseline. You know, you cannot compare uh, a company on early stage with company mid stage on later stage. And they have different risks to fail. Uh, I mean, we've seen companies that already made an APO on fail, right? That's, that's an idea. Uh, but the risk is also from the science side. I mean, we, one of the first companies that we assessed for a for an investor was uh, an investor that wanted to invest in a uh, pre uh, post IPO company. You know, this, this company already raised, it was like two years ago, they already raised like $400 million. They were working um, on, a, on a technology for cancer. It was a couple antibody with chemokin kind of asset. And they told us, we want to invest in this company. And we said, okay, give it one month understand what's going on with the company, right? And uh, we assessed the technology and we said, it, it, wo it won't work. And we then did the economic assessment and the valuation and everything, right? And they asked us why. And we said, look at the structure and what they want to accomplish. And then look like there were five other companies that did pretty much the same and they all failed. And why is that? Because this Molecular cascade makes no sense. And the, the, value, the stock value at that time, I don't recall, uh, if I recall well, was like $60. And we said, it's going to fall. Do not invest in that. And they said, okay, great. Do you know which is the value for the stock right now? Zero. $4. <laughs> and I mean, because it, they have some physical assets or something. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a, a therapeutic asset, but that wasn't the whole deal. The company had a, a new appointed board and they were selling the shares. So we said, look at the CEO and the CEO are selling the shares. I said, that's a huge red flag. You cannot sell your shares. I mean, you're a pretty chairman. Uh, so it wasn't, I mean, we, we got uh, some information from the phase two uh, a couple of months ago and they failed the primary endpoint. It's, and we knew this was going to fail, right? But uh, that doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> some other thing, I mean, we, we come out with a, with a company that is in early, early stage, right? But they're using AI for cell reprogramming. And that's, for me, was what blow my mind. I mean, they haven't validated entirely what is going on, right? But just thinking about how disruptive the 
convergence between two different technologies, right? We're working on serial programming and AI to show us which are the different metabolic pathways that we need to change. And that's huge. I mean, I, I wrote a newsletter a couple of weeks ago about that, how they can change the transplant industry. Uh, will they succeed or not? We don't know that yet, right? Um, but, you know, this is not, I mean, there are two different ways of doing innovation, right? There are the incremental innovation and disruptive innovation. Disruptive innovation, we cannot uh, get the, the light bulb from the incrementally make it more efficient, the candle, right? So that's disruptive. And those technologies are disruptive. We're going to see, you know, the game theory that, that in any industry, at the end, it's going to be like five different companies because the other ones are going to eat each other, right? So we're going to see which are the ones that are going to be at the finish line. Um, that's, nice. that's it. Well, Adrian Rubstein, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I'm sure people listening have learned a lot. Open their eyes to all the things you need to think about beyond the science and minimizing your risk and having people thinking about all those things and appreciate how sharing how you think about those things and measure valuations. <laughs> so yeah. thanks for joining me. No, thank you very much, Chris, for your time. And I mean, you can, uh, you can look for me on LinkedIn or whatever. If you need anything, people just can send me a DM or whatever. I'm here. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Okay. That was a stretch for me. Financial analysis is way outside of my comfort zone, but it was also fascinating. Nevertheless, I was inspired to learn more about real option models. I found an article from McKinsey that explains how they are not only useful for valuations, but also as a strategic guide to understand what levers can be used to optimize an investment. There's a link in the description for this episode on my Substack. As always, if you listen to this podcast, someone else you know should be listening also. Please do me the favor of sharing it, won't you? I'll appreciate it very much. And I'll be back soon with another episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>